Oh, hi, it's Mike Scully from The Simpsons, and you're listening to Four Finger Discount. Four Finger Discount, dude. Welcome to Four Finger Discount, and today we have a very special interview with the one and only Michael Scully. Yeah, this was one where my mum was actually really excited. I said to her, you know, I'm off to uh, go interview Mike Scully tomorrow. Mm. And she went, oh, the uh, the Hudson River guy? I went, no, that's Sully. She went, oh, 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 the Monsters, Inc. guy? I went, no, that's Mike Kazowski and an animated character. Mike <laughs> Scully is a writer of The Simpsons and former showrunner for four years. And then she said, I don't know who you're talking about. And I went, that's what I thought. <laughs> Once again, though, how gracious was Mike? Every Simpsons staff member we chat to, they're just so humble. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't know how many times we say it, but I will keep saying it because it really is just truly inspiring that these guys are, you know, sitting on top of the world as far as animation goes, as far as profitability and the show, and it's the biggest American show of all time. And... No one has ever come across with, who are you guys? No, I don't want to talk to you. A- apart from when Mike Reese didn't reply to an email for a year. But he even felt he- bad. Even he's felt bad. Yeah. I had such a smile on my face when he said that. Yeah. Because <laughs> oh, for a whole year, I'm thinking, why doesn't he like us? <laughs> now, I was really looking forward to this interview because Mike Scully, he was in charge between 9 and 12, season mm-hmm. 9 and 12, the point where a lot of people say it's where the show dropped off. I was really looking forward to hearing his side of things. Yeah, it provide, provides a lot of perspective and I guess a, a pragmatic realism about what it is when you're trying to create a show, particularly, I mean, it would have been this back in season nine through to 12, but particularly now after 600 some episodes that not every episode is going to hit it out of the park. And as a creator, you've kind of got to be okay with that. It is kind of where he's coming from, I think. And even you could apply that to anything, like no matter if you're a sportsman or if you're a comedian or if you are, geez, even just a guy working uh, as a mechanic, like not every job you do is going to be the best job that you've ever done. And sometimes you've got to be okay with the fact that you're just going to go in and do it and it'll be fine. And as he says, even the episodes that are uh, that are not received as well still have laughs. So you, you still get to hold your head up and go, yeah, okay, but I still made you laugh 10 times. And that's more than you get from watching a bad How I Met Your Mother episode. Well, the message I got was it's important to believe in your own direction and don't take notes from the outside noise. People, like people are saying, complaining about certain things, listen to them, but don't let it drive what you're doing. Yeah, don't get caught up in it. Yeah. Or don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> in saying that, I hope you enjoy our interview with Mike Scully. Hello, Mike. Oh, hey. Is this Brendan? Yeah, this is Brendan. How you doing, mate? All right, can you give me like 10 minutes? I'm just wrapping something up. Can, we, can you give me like, say, 10 minutes? Perfectly fine. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. Sorry about that. And there you have it, guys. It's our chat with Mike Scully. So gracious with his time. I know, right? It was really, really beautiful. I thought, I thought we'd only get like, say, five seconds. Yeah, yeah, five. He gave us the seven. Yeah. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, guys, uh, fast forward in time, 10 minutes, and here is the actual interview. Welcome to Four Finger Discount. We're lucky enough to be speaking today to Mike Scully. Mike has been working on The Simpsons for, well, 
decades now. It's amazing that you can say that about a TV show. Um, he was the writer of some standout episodes, including Lisa on Ice, Team Homer, Behind the Laughter, and of course, he gave us the beautiful musical piece of See My Vest. Mike served as a showrunner on the show from season nine through to season 12 and recently signed a new deal with Fox where he is working on developing a couple new shows, Rel and Duncanville. Uh, Mike, firstly, congratulations on that new deal and thank you very much for joining us on the show. Oh, thanks a lot. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Is there anything you can tell us about the new upcoming shows before we get into the Simpsons talk? Uh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. The, uh, see, the show Rel... Uh it's coming up in September on Fox. I don't know when it'll start uh, in Australia, but uh, it stars the stand-up comic uh, Little Rel Howery, who, if you saw the movie Get Out, he plays the TSA agent. Yeah, very and, funny in that uh, movie. Yeah, he kind of steals the movie. He actually has a movie coming out this weekend called Uncle Drew. Uh, uh, so, yeah, we're doing that. And uh, also this, the animated project, Duncanville, uh, with Amy Poehler, uh, and hopefully it'll be on Fox September 2019, but we're waiting to hear if they're going to order the show, which we should know in about two weeks. Excellent. Well, fingers crossed that'd be a, a bit of a reunion of sorts, working with Amy Poehler again after your time on Parks and Rec. Yes, yeah. She's she's one of my favorite uh, people that I've ever worked with. She's a lot. She's as much fun as you would think she would be to work with. So, yeah, we've been trying to do a project together ever since Parks ended. And uh, about a year ago, we started kicking around this uh, animation idea, and uh, my wife, Julie, is also working on it. So uh, we're at the stage now of, of actual animating, so which is exciting. We're actually seeing animation right now. Is this going to be a competition for Netflix's Disenchantment, do you think? Uh, no, I don't, it'll be, this will be for Fox. Um, so, uh, no, I don't think... The, there's a big animation boom going on right now, Uh you know, partially like, like thanks to Netflix uh, doing shows like uh, BoJack, you know, Horseman, and Big Mouth, uh, and you know, Mac Rainey's Disenchantment, which comes up in a couple months. Uh, so I think it's you know actually like Fox, I think is stepping up and uh, developing more shows themselves. So it it's good for animation. What are your thoughts on how animation has evolved over the last say ten years? We're getting more adult-based animation shows. Yeah, that's true, and I think you know especially with with Netflix. Uh, yeah. I think I think it's aimed more at it, it's probably aimed at some like people who grew up with The Simpsons and now maybe are in their their mid twenties or thirties and uh, you know want a little more adult content than you can get on a network show. So yeah, it's an interesting mix because normally in animation the first audience you get is kids and then adults sometimes later on discover you know that there's stuff in there for them too, but. Uh, Netflix is just kind of going straight at adults with their animation. So it, I, th I just think it's great. It's great for animators. It's great for comedy writers uh, and for the audience. It must be a nice uh, release for comedy writers who have been working in the animated area for a long time that they can write, you know, uh, more adult content. Like, who would have thought 30 years ago that a guy like Bill Burr would be able to have his own animated sitcom, essentially? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think part of that, too, is, you know, with primetime animation on the networks, like shows like Simpsons and King of the Hill, kind of paved the way for people to get used to to watching you know, animation as an adult. There, I think for a while in the early years, it was kind of this guilty pleasure. Or people felt a little silly as adults watching cartoons again. Uh, but now, you know, nobody thinks twice about it. So I think that's why you're seeing 
this explosion of uh, animated shows aimed at adults. Well, Mike, I, it's funny. I have to actually thank you because if it wasn't for you, I probably would have never been actually allowed to watch The Simpsons because when I was much younger, when the episode Treehouse of Horror 1 first aired, it was Bad Dreamhouse, the segment. And it's where the Simpsons family get possessed by the house and they go into the kitchen and they grab knives from the drawer and whatnot. And I would have been two or th- three or four at the time. And after watching it, I proceeded to then go into the kitchen and grab a knife out of the drawer. And at that point, my mum said, that's it, you're done, you're never watching The Simpsons ever again. And it wasn't until, <laughs> and it wasn't until you wrote this episode called Marge Be Not Proud where you have that closing moment where Bart wins Marge back over with that photo that you won my mum over again and I was finally allowed to watch the show. So thank you once again. Oh, oh, my, my pleasure. Uh, yeah, that, that episode was, uh, that, that's probably the most personal episode I've ever written uh, on the show because it was based on a real thing when I, I got caught shoplifting when I was 13 years old. And my big emotional fear was that my mother would find out and that it would be devastating to her. Uh, and she never did. But on the show, I got to play out the kind of what ifs. You know, what if that happens? And uh, so, yeah, no, that that's uh, good. I'm glad we won your mom back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny because it's similar for me because I could relate to that episode because I got caught trying to shoplift by my mother a Disney magazine at the age of eight. <laughs> Which is something we could have said a few months ago and got away with, but now they're your overlords. So, perhaps, Dando, you shouldn't have admitted to that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I guess I should recommend you. No one should steal from Disney now. <laughs> Although, although now, now as I say that, because you had mentioned the "See My Vest," you know, I, we we basically stole that song yeah, from Disney. That's so. true. <laughs> What's your thoughts on the Disney acquisition? Is that going to change the Simpsons at all? Uh, not nothing that we've heard. Um, that that stuff's all being worked out now, and Disney doesn't officially take over till uh, I think maybe January. Well, a lot of your episodes I can relate to, as I said, Marge, be not proud. Also, having a younger sister, the ending of Lisa and Ice is a moment. That still, it still today brings a tear to my eye. In the earlier days when you were first writing, was having an emotional payoff, was that important for you? Um, well, it was, yeah, it's always important. It makes the stories uh, a little richer to tell. And comedy-wise, it also allows you more license. Uh, I, I've always thought you can be a little crazier in an episode if there's a strong emotional underpinning uh, in it. So it allows you to go further with the comedy if you understand the underlying emotions. But it was also just something that was kind of a you know, trademark of The Simpsons. It was something the show did really well, you know, when it was originally set up by, you know, Jim Brooks and, and Sam Simon and Matt Groening, was that the show contained real emotion and not just feel like a cartoon. That's something that over time started to drift out of the episodes. Was that a reaction to perhaps audiences becoming a little bit more cynical or was it driven more from the writer's room and, and wanting to take it more into, you know, quote unquote cartoon antics and, and look in that area for comedy? Yeah, we were, I think, you know, we were always exploring different things. Once it was established, these characters were established. You knew the family loved each other. There was kind of a shorthand you could do emotionally. And so we were, you know, always kind of, pursuing different things or featuring supporting characters and trying that out, but still trying to figure out a way to have the Simpsons involved in the episode. You know, it, when you're doing this many, uh, the, you, know, you do have the luxury of experimenting a little. And and the only way you can find out like what's going too far or going too crazy is to kind of go past that line, you know, which we've definitely been guilty of on occasion. <laughs> so, 
Uh, but that, but that's where you kind of learn like where your boundaries are. Behind the on the subject of experimentation, behind the laughter was certainly one of the, if not the most experimental episode ever done. Having it, you know, really breaking the fourth wall and addressing the fact that this is a TV show and blah blah, uh, you know, everything else that that episode does. Was there any ideas that you pitched that you would have loved to have been able to try that, you know, might have even gone further than that, but were a little bit too risky? Oh gosh, uh, I'm sure we've probably just internally pitched stuff that we didn't figure out like how to do it or we just had like the you know kind of the, the kernel of an idea and, and weren't sure how to execute it the, the behind the laughter one was just a lot of fun because at the time the you know behind the music series was big here you know on vh1 and you know we wanted to basically we wanted to kind of capture all the uh, kind of cliches of, of that show and we even got the same narrator that vh1 used for their episodes to do it for us and yeah we we took the liberty of acknowledging that it was a show we said it was created by homer yeah <laughs> uh, so we were like playing a lot with the rules but we just felt like at that point i forgot what season that was maybe 11 it was like if we undo the rules for one episode we didn't feel like the audience would just abandon the show <laughs> if it, it was a fun experiment to do and uh any show that goes on any length of time, you always have the desire to kind of break the constraints of your format and try something a little different. Even like live action, you know, sitcoms will just try a, a, an episode all in one location. And like Seinfeld, you know, doing things like the Chinese restaurant yep. and stuff like that. You just want to try something different if you can do it and if it works. Something that I have always been curious about, whether it was ever thrown around as an idea or even now if you just think it could work, and you bring up Seinfeld. Seinfeld, um, through its its real peak in the middle seasons there, had those great story arcs that would last season to season, and even and each individual episode would have its own constraint, but it was all tied together by an overarching story. Has it ever been considered that The Simpsons could potentially try to do something like that and that might take the pressure off you guys of having to come up with a new idea you know 22 new ideas a season yeah it's story arcs are tricky to do um i think for us too because we were such part of the fun of animation is at the end of the uh, at the end of each episode you just get to push a reset button yeah and when you're doing an arc you do become kind of a you know uh, a slave to this storyline that you're you know telling over the course of a season and we've always you know kind of resisted that i'm not sure exactly we don't talk about it a lot but it's, it's just um i think we just get nervous about could we really would there be a storyline satisfying enough to justify stretching it out you know over over a season or over x number of episodes uh so we're, we're more inclined to break the format within the episode like last year i think matt selman and al jean did an episode written by carolyn almini where it was the first time we ever did a, a full half hour halloween show that wasn't three different stories it was just an episode set on halloween like a normal simpsons episode that was halloween of horror with the uh scuzzos breaking into the house yes yeah, yeah. fantastic and episode we, we, we just realized after all these years we had never done just a straight halloween story so it, and we thought it would be a fun bonus, you know, for the for the fans and the network because that year they were getting two Halloween episodes. So you know we like to play with stuff like that and, and see if that works. And like the behind the laughter and and we're actually just we were working on something yesterday, a new kind of a trilogy idea for 2019 that 
I don't think what it is yet, but it's a holiday you know, story with Halloween overtones, but not, but having nothing to do with Halloween. We're right now in the process of breaking that episode to see if we can make that work. Cool. Yeah, we, we, we get excited when we, you know, more often than not, we're like talking about stories in the room and then about two thirds of the way through breaking the story, somebody remembers that we already did it. <laughs> um, and then we have to go back, you know, and you know, look it up on uh, online or we'll go back and watch the old episode to see if we're, cause all of our memories at this point, uh, it's just like this blur of, you know, cartoon images and, and, uh, we're trying to see, you know, are we too close to an old episode? Is there a way that we can steer around it and still feel fresh? Or do we have to abandon the idea? <laughs> so, which, you know, sometimes happens. And that's very frustrating when you have something you're excited about and then realize you can't do it. <laughs> I think when I was younger, I went around telling a, a joke that I swear I had made up on my own accord. And then an Australian comedian named Carl Barron, um, I was watching a talk show and he did that exact same joke. And I realized that it had subliminally been implanted in my head and I'd accidentally been stealing from him for a year and a half. Yeah, It, it was an awful realization and I was too afraid to... I didn't go to school the next day because I knew I was going to cop it. Yeah, no, that stuff happens all the time. It's just... Uh... You know, it's funny because, you know, years ago, South Park did that episode that was, you know, the Simpsons did it. Yeah. And now we're we're the ones saying it to ourselves <laughs> uh, all the time. And it, it kind of started when we were we were trying to come up with the idea for the movie. We suddenly realized we wish we had done it 10 years earlier because every you know, the, the early ideas we had were kind of or, or or we were steering into things we had already done on the show a lot. There was a it was a constant like an obstacle course to avoid old episodes. Well, you arrived at the show The Simpsons when Al Jean left. You became showrunner five years later. Then he returned to take over from you as showrunner. What was the main reason that you decided to step down as showrunner? What what would make you leave one of television's greatest shows? <laughs> um, it was a few things. First of all, the, the tradition on the show prior to me running it was each showrunner had done it for two seasons. Mm. Uh, you know, Sam Simon did one and two. Al Jean and Mike Reese did three and four. David Merkin did five and six. That's when I was hired by David. Uh, Bill uh, Oakley and Weinstein did seven and eight. And then, yeah, so everyone left. Then I did nine and 10, assuming I would leave after 10. Uh, and I also thought there was a possibility 10 might be the end of the series because, you know, 10 seasons is a long run for an American television show. And then we decided, you know, we would do a couple more seasons. So I, I, you know, at that time I thought, all right, well, 12 will definitely be the end. Like we all agreed, you know, we gotta, you know, we gotta end this thing at some point. <laughs> so yeah, we, there was a, there was a privately like, all right, we gotta start thinking about a finale here and wrapping it up for season 12. And then I, for some reason, we just never got around to talking about it. And the decision was made of like, why do we have to stop? You know, let's just keep going. We're all having fun. So, but I had run the show four seasons at that point. And, you know, the, you know, at the joke at the time, I was like the Iron Man of the, of the show running team. And now Al Jean has been running it for like 16 years. Yeah. Uh, so now it was, I had, you know, there was other projects I was developing and, um, you know, uh, the feel, and, and as long as they were willing to let me stay at the show part time, uh, and I could go out and develop my other projects seemed like a dream scenario to me. And to be able to hand it back off to Al, you know, who along with Mike, you know, had run uh, seasons three and four, which I just thought were amazing seasons. Yeah, it just all felt right at the time, you know. And then, but you know, nobody was looking ahead to season thirty. 
there's been a few um a few of the writers have said that you were one of the best bosses that they've ever had. What do you think was your biggest influence as showrunner, uh, either in the writers' room or just in general with production? What were you able to bring to the table? I, I don't know. I mean, first, I mean, when you first take over a showrunner, it's a terrifying thing to run The Simpsons or any hit show to to take it over after it's been successful for you know a long period of time. Your main job is you know just to not wreck it, but to try to you know put a little imprint on it, but don't you know don't ruin the show mm-hmm. don't get it canceled, basically uh and i i think you know at that time you know i was the i think i was the only person on the staff that had kids or people i had the oldest kids uh, at the time and other writers had started having kids so i had this desire to kind of get control of the hours on the show we had a tendency to work a lot of late nights uh and so i kind of streamlined the system a little to allow you know the staff, including myself, to get out at a reasonable hour and go home and see your family, because I, I think out of that you can get great stories that you can put into the show. But you know, somebody there was a writer years ago. I think it was Phil Rosenthal who created Everybody Loves Raymond. He said, if you, if all you do is work at a TV show seven days a week, eighty hours, you know, that eventually all you're going to write about, all you're going to know to write about is how to work on a TV show because you're not out interacting in the real world or dealing with your family and stuff. So yeah, I got, I, I tried to get control of the hours and if we stayed late, always made sure there was a good reason for it and um, just tried to make it fun. Cause I, I think the Simpsons is the, the most fun show on TV to work on. So that was kind of basically it. Oh, and also we, we got into the union uh, that year. We got yeah. the show covered the, the writer's guild. So everyone was finally getting healthcare care. Uh, for their families and pension, which they did not have for the first nine seasons. Wow, I didn't. I, I'd never actually heard that fact before. That's that's pretty amazing. Yeah, no. And being the only writer with kids when I first came in, I was stunned. Cause, you know, as you know, like, once you have kids, like healthcare becomes very important. Yeah, uh, I, I was just I was thinking some sort of riff of Simpsons care versus Obamacare. Um, can I ask about Everybody Loves Raymond quickly, which you just mentioned? Sure. As a writer, I'm curious about what the difference is between writing A, a script for animation versus live action, but B, how do you go about writing for a show that has canned laughter versus a show like The Simpsons or Park and Rec where there's no laugh track? Right. Well, first of all, there's it's not canned laughter. Or it's studio laughter. Art. Apologies. But uh, there's, yeah. there's still a pause for <laughs> laughter. <laughs> There's a big difference because you know, I've done both and uh, it's, it's the live audience. Everything you hear like in a show like Raymond is a live audience. There are other shows. Uh, the most recent one, like all the, the sitcoms of like the 1960s and, and 70, early 70s, those, a lot of those are just laugh tracks where yeah. it's a machine and somebody turning a dial. Uh, you know, it's basically the same people that were laughing at I Love Lucy in the 50s. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, and I think some of those tracks still exist today. On some shows, you're you're literally li- you're listening to the laughs of dead people, you know. So, but Raymond was, uh, you know, done in front of a live audience. The laughs, it was like it's like a play. Some stuff gets big laughs, some stuff gets small laughs, some stuff gets no laugh, and that's what contributes to the live feeling of it. But what what I don't like in a laugh track situation is in a show where like kind of gets the same size laugh. Because that's never the way comedy works. So you get your big belly laughs, but you also get the kind of the small, you know, knowing laugh or that's amusing or that sort of thing. 
And Raymond was great about that. Some jokes get these gigantic laughs, but I've, I've watched other shows where it's a laugh track and everything gets the same kind of, ha ha, ha ha, just all the way through. And it drives me up a wall because that's not how people laugh. So from a writing standpoint, Raymond, it's a you know, different part of your brain you're using. You can't do stuff on Raymond that you could do on The Simpsons. You know, you can't, you know, you don't want to see, you can't have characters burst into flames. Uh, you don't. <laughs> you know, you don't want to see Raymond strangling his kids because it would be horrifying. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, and that's the, the the joy of animation that it allows you to cross those kind of lines. And you know, animation allows you to defy gravity. You know, you you literally, you know, you get to shoot characters into space <laughs> and uh, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but Raymond, you know, I, I was a big fan of the show before I joined as a writer, and because I just thought it was expertly written and acted and uh, struck a chord with the audience watching. It's always amazing to me if you can make the audience watch TV and and let them have that moment of recognizing themselves in the show or like, oh yeah, we've had that argument or, you know, my dad has said those things. And I think The Simpsons, you know, at the core does that too. I think American families see themselves in The Simpsons. And I think that's what the shows have in common. And, you know, Parks and Rec was a, a very different style of show. It's, you know, single cam you know, shot mockumentary style. But, you know, still the goal is to make the audience laugh and to care about the characters. And I think all three of those shows accomplished that, you know, just in, in different ways. And, and Parks and Rec took on kind of a, a a Simpsons life on its own as the universe of the show expanded. Uh, you know, we had a, a rival town that was kind of our Shelbyville <laughs> and uh, uh, called Eagleton. And, and we just kind of built out these characters that would pop up in the world of parks and rec in the same way they did at the simpsons and chris pratt eventually became you know a kid show host johnny karate and you know <laughs> kind of our our crusty the clown you know? <laughs> so. i guess the the one difference is in parks and rec you had rob Lowe, and no animator could possibly draw someone as perfect <laughs> yeah that's very true i remember the first day when rob started on the show all like the uh, the male writers on the show we couldn't wait to see him in person. We're like, yeah, we'll see how good looking this guy is when you're up close without the camera filters and all the makeup. And all. <laughs> we were going on and on about how hideous he was going to look when we saw him in person. And he walked into the writer's room like, oh, my God, he's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to The Simpsons, Matt Groening, he was a lot more hands-on in the earlier seasons. He was a big advocate for ensuring the show kept a, a sense of realism. Sure, he let some stuff, stuff slide, like Marge versus the Monorail and whatnot, but he still, overall, he tried to keep it real. But by 1999, he was off doing Futurama. So do you think not having him around and having his sort of creative input impacted The Simpsons at that point in time? Uh, no, I don't think so. Matt has never really left the show. Like When he was doing Futurama, their office was literally like 50 feet from the Simpsons office. So he could walk back and forth and pop into each show. And he would be at every Simpsons, you know, table read of you know, the script readings and all the, the post-production, the, the final mixes of the show. And he was at the story retreats where we would pitch all the story that season. So he, when he was doing Futurama, he didn't abandon the Simpsons. So his sensibility is still very much like, in the room, there's, you know, certain rules we try not to, to violate, you know, uh, but, you know, the rules of the early seasons would not have led to the show becoming, being able to last as long, long as it could. Yeah, you know, we just 
the world had to expand and we had to try different things. And I think that would be the first to acknowledge that. And, you know, like I said, sometimes we expanded, we, we, we experimented with great success and other times you're like, all right, well, seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> at a certain point, right on to the next one. <laughs> how, how did Matt take the, the criticism the show was starting to get? Because for so long, it was just considered, you know, the, the peak of television. Now, all of a sudden, these people are getting on the internet saying, worst episode ever. H- how did Matt react to that kind of feedback? Oh, uh, uh, Matt, I don't know like what his reaction was. We were kind of, you know, we were on the air when that stuff first started, like with the internet in the early 90s. Yeah. I think it was like alt TV Simpsons. And, you know, I think it was like around season five was the first time we saw like basically worst episode ever. Or when are they going to put this show out of its misery? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That sort of thing. And then as the years went on, the bar for like when when they felt the show should have been canceled kept getting moved and shows that were being criticized on the Internet later on were being revered as as classic seasons which, you know, always kind of made us laugh. But, you know, it's always, it's nice that people get passionate about anything these days, that you can get an audience worked up enough to have a, a, a strong opinion for or against something. But you know, we've never kind of, you know, we've never been in the habit of letting the internet dictate the content of the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, my feeling was always a lot of great television was made before the internet existed. How did they do it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, they the had editor. to just think of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and you just live and die by, you know, your own instincts and you hopefully, you hope that you get it right about 80% of the time. And that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, we're always, we're always, every episode starts out with the intention of this is going to be great. You know, it's all, we always intend it to be a great class, you know, hopefully a classic episode. You know, it's always the audience that determines what a classic episode is, but, you know, if some of them just don't work and eventually you run out of time and money, <laughs> you, you put it out there and say, you know, you know, sorry, America. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, have no, I have no illusions that every episode I've been involved in has, like, you know, been a great one. But it makes you appreciate the great ones a lot more when everything just kind of comes together, when the story works, the jokes work, the emotion is there and everything just falls into place. And, you know, you experience that truly on any show. If you can experience that like four times a year out of 22 where everything worked, it's an amazing feeling. You know, you get about four of those a year and then you hopefully you get a bunch that come out good and then a few pretty good. And then a couple of like, oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) when we do those DVD commentaries, it was tough like going back because you're going back 10 years to do these commentaries and you're going back over like decisions you made, you know, 10 years earlier. <laughs> like, and there were, there was a few episodes like, Oh, can we skip this one and just go to the next one? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just going to say, if you can squeeze, sorry, America in as an episode title for any episode in the future, I, it, uh, I will owe you a debt of gratitude that it would be a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant name for any show to do. <laughs> well, what, what do you think are the episodes that, truly define the scully era of the simpsons oh gosh i i I, i'd like to think they're just kind of like all over the map for different reasons you know there are some fun uh like just really good strong emotional stories there's one that al gene wrote called um homer uh h-o-m-r one of my favorites 
Yeah, and it's a really strong emotional episode. It went through the same process that every single episode does, and we had different versions of the story. But ultimately, it came out fantastic, uh, and we're all super proud of it. Uh, you know, because it is such a great Homer Lisa show. I'm a sucker for Homer Lisa stories because I have five daughters. So I kind of gravitate toward those episodes. That's why, like, the early ones that I wrote for the show, like Lisa's Rival or Lisa on Ice, you know, I, I, I just love writing. But also, I wanted the show to, you know, to, to be silly, you know, certain episodes and, um, to try behind the laughter. So I don't think there's any, like, one episode. I did lean, I, I probably lean fully on Homer just because I think Homer, I think Homer Simpson is the greatest character in television history, period. And, you know, in great part due to the performance of Dan Castellaneta, you know, in that he can play so many different types of emotions that he allows you to write all kinds of stories and jokes for him. I mean, Homer in one scene can play so many different emotions. It's what makes him fun uh, to write and to animate. But yeah, I, I'm not sure that there's a defining show. I leaned a little hard into uh, getting rock stars on the show. <laughs> that, that would be a, a trademark of mine, I think. Now, Mike, tell us what it was like in those early days when you'd first joined the Simpsons staff. Oh, man. Uh, it's funny when I first... Uh, it's funny, actually, I should back up even more. Like When the show first got on the air, you know, when I heard that they were developing a half-hour version of it, I had seen the Tracy Ullman shorts the like, you know, 22nd or 30 second, whatever they were. And my initial reaction was, Oh my God, like 30 sec, 30 minutes of that every single week. I, <laughs> it just sounded horrifying to me. I, I think I had a, a problem being an adult, like watching a cartoon. It, it felt like kind of silly or whatever it was, you know, uh, I, I, so I didn't watch it initially. And when the show started, my wife was watching the episodes, but I wasn't. And, she finally like forced me to watch one and it, it happened to be the one where Homer goes over the gorge on, uh, on the skateboard. Yep. And then I thought it was the most brilliant thing I had ever seen on television and I was hooked. So like, you know, flash forward, you know, uh, four years later and I get a call to meet on the show. And, you know, when I started working, I was, yeah, I really was terrified. I had, and I'd already been on other shows for seven years on various shows, but there was such a, like almost like a mythology that had like been created in town about the Simpsons writers room. And you would hear stories, you know, going around about what it's like to be in there with, you know, with you know, like George Meyer and Al Jean and, and, uh, and, you know, and then like the, the ones I had heard the most recent before I started was Conan O'Brien. And you just hear these stories about this, this guy named Conan O'Brien <laughs> that was amazing. And he would stand on the table and perform for the writers perform all the episode in character. <laughs> he would pitch all of his stuff in character. Uh, so I got myself really freaked out when I started on the show. And I, I, I was second guessing all of my pitches, which I had never done before. And I found myself kind of sitting there quietly every day, having like thinking of jokes in my head, but being too afraid to actually pitch them out loud. Mm. Uh, and I know the show was thinking, why did we hire this guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but nobody was saying, but, and then like, as the days go by, the more you don't talk, the more you realize, oh, when I do talk, now it's going to be a big deal. Everyone's going to turn their head and go, who the hell is that? <laughs> so now it's like, well, when I do say something, now it's got to be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you start putting all this crazy 
internal pressure on yourself. You know, I, I remember driving home every night, like really angry at myself that I hadn't pitched anything and swearing that like I was promising myself the next day that tomorrow I'm going to pitch something. Tomorrow's going to be the day. <laughs> but at the same time, I was telling my wife, like, we can't buy a house. We no no major purchases. I'm going to be fired. <laughs> but I finally got up the nerve. And, and, and it was a good six to eight weeks before I finally got up wow. the <laughs> And I can't remember the episode, but it's where Homer, Homer invests in pumpkin futures mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, decides to hang on to them like past Halloween and past Thanksgiving. <laughs> and, he yeah. tried, he, he, and decides to sell them like in January or something. And he blows the kid's college fund. And he and Marge have a big fight. And Homer, uh, the joke I pitched was uh, Homer saying, I'll understand if you want to sleep on the couch tonight, Marge. And he goes upstairs <laughs> and peacefully goes to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Can you remember the first idea of yours that got turned down? And how did you feel when it was? Oh, the, well, that was the first joke I actually pitched. And it happened to go in. But there was lots of jokes that I like. I would be sitting there just thinking to myself. And then I would think of something and then... And then I'd say, no, that's too stupid for this show. I could pitch that at, at these other shows, but not not at The Simpsons. <laughs> Same and then good some, stuff. And, yeah. And then somebody else would pitch the same joke and they would get a giant laugh and go in the script. <laughs> but it's bad form in a writer's room to say like, oh, yeah, I thought of that, too. You yeah, know, you yeah. can't do that. You just have to kind of swallow it and try to learn for the next time. And that happened to me probably three or four times before I finally like got up the nerve to actually pitch something. But yeah, it was the show just had this aura about it when you came in, you know, that, that you just, I just put all this extra pressure on myself. And like I said, just got in, I got in my own head and freaked myself out. And my very first day on the show, I was so excited that I was going to be working with Conan O'Brien because I had just heard stories about him. He was kind of this mythical figure in a comedy room. And as it turned out, we we were introduced to each other at a table raid. We shook hands. Somebody came over, tapped him on the shoulder and said, you have a phone call. And he left. And then he didn't come back the rest of the day. And we were wondering, like, what happened to him? Or, you know, we thought maybe it was a family emergency or something. And then we read the next morning in the newspaper that he had been picked by cool. NBC to host <laughs> their new late night show. Read in the paper. That's when you've made it big. <laughs> yeah, and they had told him to just go to his apartment, don't talk to anybody, we'll make an official announcement. So he wasn't allowed to tell anybody what had happened. <laughs> so we just thought he was missing for the day. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so then he immediately was like taken off the show into his own late night show. So we got to work together for about a minute and a half. <laughs> so... Uh, and that was it. He was gone. 90 precious seconds that you'll cherish forever, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I always say I was the last one to know him, the last person to meet Conan O'Brien before he was famous. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> the whole time you were telling the story about being a bit afraid to pitch, I was uh, I was imagining you sneaking in late at night, Goodwill hunting style, and just writing jokes on a chalkboard <laughs> and then not taking credit for them the next day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that is another. You, uh, it's not exactly that, but it, there is a trick. Sometimes you do like, and I would do it a lot in the early years, where I would take the script home at night and like really study it and work on it, and I would scribble jokes in the margins of the script for myself, and I just kind of would have it in the room 
and I would glance down at the things that I, once I had started talking in the room, I, and, but you make it look like you're just coming up with it off the yep. top of your head when in <laughs> fact you've spent hours on it the night before <laughs> like, crafting every syllable. Uh, uh, and, and then you just kind of like, Hey, what if he said something like, I don't know. And then you just like throw it out there <laughs> with this, this perfectly crafted joke. <laughs> I, I imagine that the answer to this is going to be a positive one, but what were the other writers' reception to you like? Uh, you, you've mentioned, or, or it's, it's, at the very least, it's on your Wikipedia profile, so let's say it's on record, that you, you dropped out of college, you're in a room full of Harvard graduates. Did oh, they yeah. ever let that be known, or was that just in your own mind? Uh, a lot of it was just in my own head, you know, because that was also part of you know what I had learned about the staff, was that they were all Harvard grads, all Ivy League educated, most of the staff, you know, they were headed, you know, to have careers like as biochemists and lawyers, mathematicians. Hmm. And I went to something called community college. I don't know if that exists in Australia. It's kind of like junior college or, you know, somebody once described it as high school with ashtrays. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we have that equivalent here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've seen community. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I went to one of those and I literally stayed there a half a day and i decided this isn't for me you know um and if you quit like in the first 24 hours you got your money back Ah. so and i was paying for it myself (laughs) so i decided to quit and i just i just started working regular jobs i was a you know i taught people how to drive i worked like fast food i was a janitor in a hospital things like that and then you know all these years later you know at the Simpsons and you walk into that room and it literally, they're not only brilliant comedy writers, they're brilliant everything, <laughs> you know, there, there's no subject that they're not brilliant in. So yeah, I found myself very intimidated and I did not talk about like what my college experience was until I was really comfortable on the show, which was probably about a, a year or two later. <laughs> yeah. When you're the only non-Harvard graduate, it's a lot easier to find your coffee mug though. So that it does have its benefits. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> and when somebody found out you know, many years later, when I was on Everybody Loves Raymond, one of the writers, you know, they asked me what it was like to like being in charge of a group of Harvard, you know, writers. Like, and he said he goes, "Didn't they mind being bossed around by a moron?" Because <laughs> 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 there was there were periods where there would be say like you know nineteen or twenty of us in a room. And everyone in the room is is a Harvard grad, and then there was me, the village idiot. <laughs> so, it was, it, you know, I I think I just kind of squeaked in. I got lucky that they were open to the idea of of going outside the Harvard pipeline, you know, briefly, and and I, I got to sneak in, and you know, that's why I've never let go <laughs> once yes. I got in. <laughs> well, if there's anything that Americans have proven of late, it's that they don't mind being run by an idiot. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true yeah i guess i i guess i was kind of the trump of the room now that i think about it <laughs> that, there must have been one hell of a spec script that you used when you first applied yeah i used um i had a couple spec scripts um i had a seinfeld spec script that i had written and also i i wrote one the first year that the larry sanders show was on i don't know if that's played in australia with gary shandling uh, it's it was available on DVD. It may have been when I was very young played on TV, but I've, I've certainly seen uh, the Larry Sanders show, but it wouldn't be 
big in Australia. Oh, okay. Real, well, was... real comedy nerds find it, but that's about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great show. It ran on HBO, and it was a brilliant kind of takeoff on a, a fictional version of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Hmm. And, and, that, and not just Johnny Carson, but that style of show. And so the first year they were on, somebody got me in to pitch a story to them, to pitch story ideas to be a freelance writer. <clears throat> and I had pitched one that they liked. And then uh, Gary told me to go home and, and, you know, work on the idea, flesh it out more, and then come back again. And so I did that. I was super excited. And then like weeks went by and I wasn't hearing from anybody at the show at all. And I had done and so I finally called up the guy who was running the show when I was there. And it turned out he had been fired after I left, <laughs> apparently after <laughs> left that meeting. And there was a new guy in who didn't know anything about me. And they had scrapped all the ideas that they had taken pictures on. So I had, I had worked out this whole story. So I decided to write it as a spec script. And that went over to The Simpsons along with my Seinfeld. And that's what ultimately got me the job. How does a Simpsons writer get hired these days? Um, it's a mix of things. Uh, um, you know, it's still like reading material. Uh, a lot of it is based on that. Al Jean does all the hiring now. Mm -hmm. So he, uh, he likes to read, uh, he'll read spec scripts or like original pilots that people write. You know, Al is a Harvard Lampoon guy. So you know, that's always, you know, he knows that, you know, that pipeline very well and, and, and knows the, you know, what you have to, what it takes to become a member of the Lampoon. So he likes those too. But I think he's kind of open to all submissions, uh, particularly when you hear a recommendation from a friend, mm -hmm. that's always helpful too. If somebody that somebody's opinion, who you respect, if they say, Oh, you got to read so-and-so, uh, you should read this script. That's a big selling point too. And most of the shows now are, are reading original pilots more than spec scripts, which to me is much harder because it's hard, even after you've been doing this for a lot of years to write a good pilot. Yeah. Uh, so when you're brand new and just starting out, I think it's easier to write a spec script of an existing show. I also think it's easier for the showrunner to read it because the job you're being hired for is to mimic another show's voice. And can you write someone else's characters and not just your own? Yeah. So I, I prefer to read scripts of existing shows. Um, but, you know, the rules are changing now. I, you know, I know there's been there's a great you know, writer, uh, Megan Anram, who's written for Parks and Rec and The Good Place. And, and she's now has done some time here at The Simpsons. And, and she was hired, I believe, for Parks and Rec off of her Twitter feed. She's super funny on Twitter, like just a killer joke writer. And the showrunner of Parks and Rec brought her in and just thought that, you know, well, she can learn story and character, but I can't teach how to be funny. Yeah. And she already had that part down and, and her jokes were very smart. And now she's one of the most sought after writers in town. So th there's more ways to break in now for people. Also with, with places like, you know, Funny or Die and, and, you know, things like that. There's more outlets where people can get their work to be seen. Yeah. You know, and you can do it from more places. Like when I did it, you had to move to LA. Uh, that's not necessarily the case anymore. Mm -hmm. I know there's a writer on, I think it's on the Seth Meyer show who, when they were putting that show together, they were looking for good joke writers and they found this guy on Twitter that they, uh, the head writer was a big fan of and he tracked him down and contacted him and said, you know, we're, we're meeting people for Seth Meyers new show. And it turned out the guy wasn't a comedy writer at all. He lived in Cleveland. He had a little advertising business locally and family and he just wrote jokes for fun. It was just kind of a hobby. 
and they assumed he was an aspiring comedy writer. <laughs> and, you know, flip two, they wind up flying him to New York and he wound up getting out of the advertising business and he's been on the staff. I think it's either Seth's show or James Corden. I can't remember which one. But, uh, yeah, he's been on the staff, you know, that for like four years now. That's amazing. We'll <laughs> you get never on Twitter, know. people. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How has the vibe of the Simpsons writer's room changed from now compared to when you first started? Uh, oh, God. Um, Does it still have that aura from outside? You know, I, I for some people, I think, you know, I, I don't think it's as, you know, big as it once was. You know, I, I think it's impossible to kind of maintain that. But, you know, it is, you know, I think the show has kind of, come around when you've been on this long you go through kind of you know highs and lows and, and stuff and right now we seem to be on a bit of a high again i think because we're approaching 30 seasons but it's always a respected room for sure and people do get a kick out of you know at being asked to join the staff and uh and especially now when you hire a younger writer now you're hiring somebody who literally grew up with the show <laughs> mm. who was watching it when they were 10 years old which is pretty you know it's pretty wild <laughs> But it's a fun room. It's a very respectful room. It's not some, I think sometimes like a news crews have come here to film the room thinking it's going to be kind of wild and chaotic and, you know, <laughs> just like out of control. And then they see it's just a bunch of, you know, people sitting around very quietly <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of the next joke. And, and then it's, it's, uh, you can always see that disappointment in people's faces when they just, when they visit the room. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we did something in the episode. I think it's The Simpsons versus New York, mm-hmm. where Bart, oh, Bart yeah. gets with to Mad Magazine. Yeah. I was just Mad, thinking Mad Magazine, <laughs> yes. You know, and uh, you know, because it's what you create in your head of your favorite thing of, of what it must be like to work there, and then you find out that it's oh, it's just a bunch of people sitting around, the same as any office. Yeah, know? I thought uh, South Park, the documentary, is it Six Days to Wear or Seven Days to Wear, did a phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal job of showing that. That I think two or three days go by before they even had the central idea of the episode, and then for the next two days, Bill Hader basically just sits there and laughs at whatever gets suggested. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much how it works. Yeah, no, that that's an amazing documentary. If anybody hasn't seen it, uh, we we really envy the fact that they can turn out such a great show in such a short amount of time. You know, the the fact that they they can be so topical to like have something in the news one week and have it on the air the next is incredible because that's the one thing The Simpsons has never been able to do because of the animation takes nine months. It's very hard for us to be topical. Mm. Sometimes we get lucky. And, you know, uh, something will happen in the news around the time the episode airs or we're, we're able to switch out a joke at the last minute and take the joke out of the character's mouth and put the topical joke in just before the episode airs. And that gives the illusion that we're always like being topical. But most of the time, the episodes are written months in advance. That helps it be a bit more timeless at the same time, though, that you're not relying on zeitgeist. Uh, yeah, because we do like sometimes we'll have, you know, a joke we'll think of in the room and then we'll realize it because it'll be something that, yeah, that's very much in the in the zeitgeist at the time. And the, but then we'll always realize, oh, wait, by the time this airs, we'll be the last show doing a joke about it. Yeah. You know, and then so that we'll wind up taking it back out for that reason. But it does. I think it does contribute a, a little more timeless quality to the show that you're not depending heavily on pop culture references and that was a big that was a rule at uh, everybody loves raymond was no pop culture references whatsoever okay uh, and the, the theory like phil rosenthal said he's 
he says, I know it'll get a laugh the night we film it. He says, but I want it to be able to get a laugh 20 years from now. And cause he was thinking ahead, you know, of, you know, shows that didn't depend on that sort of stuff, like mm. the Dick Van Dyke show or Lucy. And he wanted Raymond to have that kind of life. I think the Simpsons were able to ride that line quite well though, where you, you still made references and parodies of certain things, but it was all timeless pop culture parodies. Yeah, yeah, we tend to wait till we're sure that something's going to stay a reference forever, uh, and then uh, and then we'll jump in and, and do something, you know. Like, uh, guys, what's the verdict on Citizen Kane? Is that sticking around? You reckon? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we do have those kind of conversations. Of, like, if, if something just feels too much of the moment, and we know, like, you know, in a couple months it's going to be played out, we. We will usually try to try to avoid that if we can. Well, with that in mind, then uh, I'm curious: How would you look back at an episode, a la the 24 parody? 24 obviously was massive in its day. It was one of the biggest TV shows going on. But I would dare say now there's a lot of people growing up that have that wouldn't recognize the words Jack Bauer. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's, um, and I think when we did it, we, we did it a little late, maybe, but. We had heard that the everyone over there was a fan of the show, and Keeper was a fan, and uh, you know we were looking for the, the the fun thing of 24 at the time when it was on. It was just kind of a new format, a new structure, in a way of doing a TV show that you know people tried to copy a lot. There was you know, after 24 hit, there were so many pilots done of things happening in real time. Yes, you know most of them did not work, but you know 24 stuck around, and then they did the revival a few years ago. They brought it back, and, and there was talk of doing a movie. But yeah, you're right. There's probably for kids now that I, it probably doesn't mean anything at all. <laughs> so. It works for me, and I thank you for it because it, <laughs> as a uh, teenager or young teen, when 24 came out, it was uh, mind-blowingly good. Um, I, another thing we wanted to get into a little bit with you was uh, you've written some great sports episodes. What sort of a role has sport, I guess, played? A, in your life, is it a coincidence that you've just churned a couple out or do you try to steer it in that direction? No, uh, I, what I tried to do is I'm really, I'm not so much a big sports fan. I'm a big hockey fan. Mm. And when I got to the show, they had already done, I see, I think, I believe they had already done baseball and I think they had done a baseball episode and a football episode. <laughs> so I was like, have you done hockey yet? <laughs> and they hadn't done hockey. So I pitched uh, Lisa on Ice as a brother sister story and it worked out really well. So that, that was definitely like, I, I think I was the first hockey fan on the writing staff and I definitely, you know, the years I was running the show and I may have mentioned this before, but it was the more like music, uh, not so much songs in the show, but like rock stars on the show and, uh, that sort of thing. Like the episode, how I spent my summer vacation was, you know, based on, I had heard this kind of like old, guitar player on the Howard Stern radio show talking about his plans to open up a um, rock and roll fantasy camp. Yep. And he was going to have, and he was naming who the teachers were going to be. It was going to be like somebody from uh, Cheap Trick and Bad Company and Alice Cooper and like that. And that's the way I actually started writing the episode was with those people in mind. And then we got a call from the Stones management they were preparing for a tour like the following year and they were wondering if there was something they could do on the show that might coincide with the launch of their tour. So like, <laughs> I immediately wrote all those rock stars out of the show <laughs> and, and suddenly it became Mick and Keith. And once you get Mick and Keith, like, 
well, if we got Mick and Keith, we certainly should get Tom Petty and Elvis Costello. So we just started changing all the rock stars and, and we wound up writing more than, uh, than we could use. I think one of the things that I wound up cutting that was painful to cut was we had written a thing for Jimmy Page and Robert Plant that we liked a lot. And we just thought, well, we're just getting too many. You know, we have to cut somebody here and we don't want to do it after making them come in and record. So it, uh, it seemed better to do it before the script was uh, was finished. But yeah, once Mick and Keith came in and, and uh, they were a blast and we just kind of upgraded the whole thing. So that was the last full episode that I wrote and produced for the show. And uh, it was it was just a lot of fun. And and for I don't know if you have a lot of aspiring writers who listen to your uh, podcast, but that show for me was a great learning experience of never throw out an idea, even if it's just like a part of an idea. The first third of that show about Homer getting drunk in a t- and, and riding home from Moe's and saying all that horrible stuff about his family and marriage and how he gave up his dreams and that thing about marriage is like a coffin and each kid is another nail. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the idea that he was being recorded for a TV show called Taxi Cab Confessions, which was a big show here on HBO, I I had that for almost two years, that first act of the show. I I had, but I never knew what to do with the second half of, of the show. Like once the family sees Homer saying all those horrible things about you know marriage and kids, like how do you get out of it? And for the next two years, anytime I would think about it, I would think about it in terms of well, it has to be a big apology show. It has to be Homer trying to get back in the family's good graces for the remainder of the episode. And I could never figure it out. And then when I heard that Howard Stern interview about rock and roll fantasy camp, it was like a light bulb moment of, wait a minute, what if the family thought he had a point? So instead of, they could still be mad at him in the moment, but then Marge could think, well, you know, he did sacrifice a lot for us and he does do things he doesn't want to do for us. And maybe we should, you know, so they could hate what he said, but understand why he said it. And then they decide to surprise him you know, by sacrificing their family vacation so he can have his rock and roll fantasy camp. And then the whole thing just fell into place so quickly after that. That is a uh, a really genius sort of light bulb moment to subvert that expectation of where it's going to go. If I could just pat your back for a moment. that's um, <laughs> Sometimes when you hear people explain the mechanics of, of writing, it can be dull, but that is a really <laughs> important lesson. Like that, that's a really fascinating thing to, to have heard. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I always do it, like, subsequently, whenever I'm writing, if I'm really stuck on something in the story for a long period, I'll just suddenly, I always go back to that in my head and go, all right, what if everyone reacted exactly the opposite of what you'd expect, just to see if that would be a better way to go? Yeah. You know, and if you could and if you could justify it. Were the Rolling Stones what you expected? I mean, Keith Richards in the recording studio, that must have been an experience. Oh, man, it, it was great. It was. I had so much fun. I think Keith came in before Mick. Like they came in about three weeks apart. And, uh, Keith was hilarious. He was everything you wanted Keith Richards to be. You know, he came in, you know, you know, on a a hot summer afternoon, (laughs) you know, wearing, wearing a leather vest with no shirt. (laughs) Uh, uh, and the cigarette, the, uh, the cigarette out the side of the mouth. And, uh, he was hilarious. He was so much fun. It's funny. There's some footage at the end of the episode that I, I put in little snippets showing each person recording their lines. Mm. 
just to kind of prove that they were really here. <laughs> and, uh, and it was fun, you know, for us. But he was so polite. And we, normally, there's a rule on the Fox lot uh, that you can't smoke in the recording studios. But it's like I'm not going to tell Keith Richards to not smoke. <laughs> so, but we had no ashtray at all in the room, and so he was smoking and. He was being like very polite. He was trying to keep smoking, but the head of his cigarette was getting so long, <laughs> and like it's gonna fall and it's gonna set fire to the carpet. And uh, so finally, like, he finally said, "Any chance anybody might have an ashtray?" And we didn't have it. Someone handed him this giant candy dish, this ceramic thing, and it was really heavy. And he was, he was, he said, "Thank you." He was trying to make it work, <laughs> and I could see like. He was, you know, his hand, I think, was starting to shake from holding it for so long. <laughs> and then we finally just got him. Uh, somebody scrounged up a real ashtray somewhere on the lot. But he was a blast. We did a, an interview with him afterwards, like Fox publicity. And he brought his uh, wife with him, who was very sweet. And they asked him, they said, uh, are, are the Simpsons family at all like the Richards family? And he goes, he goes, well, I don't think they've been busted for drugs as many times. <laughs> he starts cracking up, and I look over at his wife, and she's just burying her face in her hands. <laughs> it's, just like, it's, it's like, oh, that must be like what it's like to be married to Keith. <laughs> but but I mean, she was laughing at the same time. Yeah. So uh, it was fun. And and like with Mick, uh, Mick Jagger, it was a couple like great moments. Like one, like, he came in, like, first of all, like, a group of people came in. Like, Keith was just by himself, I think, or maybe one person. Mick, there was more of, like, six or seven people with him. And we were waiting in the studio, and his manager came up to me in the recording studio and said, Mick would like to speak with you in the green room. And I thought, oh, no, like, there's, there's a problem or something. And I went in there, and I expected there would be, a, a, like, some like an entourage of people with him there, too. And I went in, and he was the only one in the room. And he was sitting on the couch, flipping through the script, and he he was very polite. He says, "Oh, hi, how you doing?" And he, he like patted the couch for me to sit next to him, <laughs> and and he's going through the script page by page and pointing out, "Oh, I like this joke. I like that. Oh, that's funny." And and you know, I, on the outside, I was trying to be like professional and business like, but on the inside, I was like a twelve year old girl going, "Oh my god." <laughs> <laughs> You're Mick Jagger. <laughs> you look to your left, and suddenly David Bowie is materialized on the couch. Yes, yeah, it is like that that scene in Extras, but uh, but he was so much fun, and I understood when we were recording him. I finally understood why he also had dreams of being an actor because he's actually really good. He required very little direction. Uh, his line readings were perfect. His instincts, his comedy instincts, were great. And Dan Castellaneta was in recording. And there was a great ad lib that made it into the episode where Mick has to explain to Homer that they, they gave him the they asked him to to be uh, with them at a benefit concert the following night. Homer thinks that he wants them to play with him and they just want him to be like to test the microphones. Yeah. And Mick, Mick says he goes, we just need you to tap the mic and say, test, test. And Dan Castellaneta ad-libbed as Homer. He went, can't you do it? Uh, <laughs> and Mick laughed. I, I put his laugh at the end of those clips. It was such a genuine laugh. You could tell nobody had said something like that to Mick Jagger in 40 years. <laughs> uh, and he, he found it so incredibly funny. <laughs> On the topic of guest stars, going back to Lisa on Ice, you wanted the likes of Gretzky in that episode, but unfortunately it never happened. 
Have you ever thought of an idea for an episode purely to get a certain guest star on the show? Oh God. Um, let's see. Well, yeah, the uh, the episode Beyond Blunderdome yep. was written to uh, have Mel Gibson on the show. Okay. I knew Mel. Both our kids went to the same public school, and we had met each other at a school uh, fundraiser where Mel was the host, and my wife and I wrote jokes for him. And we just kind of hit it off, and we stayed friends, and our kids were like the same age. And they were all like giant fans of the show. And so yeah, that was written specifically to get him into an episode. And he was a lot of fun. Uh, he, you know, doing that ultra violent version of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a lot of fun having him there. So yeah, sometimes we'll do that. And, um, an episode was written once for Prince to be on the show, but it turned out he didn't like the script. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also somebody reminded me of these, it's, I think it's a Halloween segment with the smart house with Pierce Brosnan. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yep. We originally wrote that and we sent the script. We had been told that the singer Lyle Lovett was a big fan of the show. And we thought, well, that could be kind of a funny voice running their house. So we sent the script to Lyle Lovett. <laughs> and then uh, after hearing that he really wanted to be on the show, and then we got a call saying he was passing and that he thought the script was somehow a joke at his expense, huh. which it wasn't intended to be at all. So we wound up with Pierce Brosnan, which was, you know, a, a pretty cool upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you need there is the, uh, I'm not sure if you're a Arrested Development fan, but there's um, one moment oh, yeah. where they make a reference to Andy Griffith and Ron Howard, the voiceover, voiceover comes in with, no one was making fun of Andy Griffith. This cannot be stressed enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, he was another great guest star. He was the first guest star we've had that we brought back for a second episode. Yeah. I think since then we've had a few like multiples, but Ron Howard was the first time we had somebody back a second time because he was so damn funny the first time on the show in that episode. And he loved the way we portrayed him as kind of this martini swilling bathrobe wearing Hollywood jerk <laughs> who steals <laughs> ideas from people. Yeah, he, he just loved playing that, you know? And so, yeah, that's why we had him back a second time. And I think my favorite line in that whole episode, it's the one where Homer becomes assistant to Alec Baldwin yeah. and Kim Basinger. Yeah. There's a chase scene in the third act. And uh, somebody says to Ron Howard, they want him to take over the driving in the, of the truck. Or something. Can you drive? And Ron Howard, his line reading is so dead on. He goes, not well. <laughs> <laughs> he says it with such conviction. It always... It was like one of those big writer's room laughs when we played it back. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, f final question, I think, uh, Mike, would be, and um, maybe this will be cut out depending on the answer, but <laughs> a chance for you to bag a celebrity if you want to. Um, there's a famous South Park story about how George Clooney was lobbying to be on the show and they said, well, only if you come on and play the dog. So, has there been a celebrity <laughs> that you wouldn't wanted, like you wouldn't want on the show ever, that has lobbied to try to get on, and you've had to find a creative way to shoot down? Oh, uh, yeah, I got a call once twenty years ago about Madonna expressing interest in being on the show, right? And I've never passed faster on anything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't even come up with a creative way. I don't think I said no. I said no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you Seinfelded it. Yeah, Seinfeld. 
yeah. It just she seems so like she seems so humorless to me. I couldn't imagine spending a, an hour with her in a recording booth, and uh, you know. So I don't. Maybe I'm being too harsh on her, but no, it sounded no. it just didn't sound <laughs> fun to me. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we, have, we have to let you go, Mike, because you're actually working at the Simpsons Studios today. I am. It's it's Tuesday, so I'm at the Simpsons. <laughs> what is your current role on the show? Uh, I'm a consulting producer on the show. Um, I come in one day a week, and I just kind of dive into whatever they're working on at the time. It could be like at the beginning of breaking a story, or it could be rewriting like a color screening of an episode that's almost done. It, it can be anything at all. And then I come in on Tuesdays and uh, and just help out. Uh, with that, it's, you know, I love doing it and I think it's helpful to the staff because I come in with fresh eyes on something that maybe they've been working on for a week. And so, you know, anytime somebody comes in from the outside uh, who knows the show, it's helpful that they can look at it slightly differently or they might, you know, I'll be excited to pitch on something that maybe they're getting tired of pitching on it. So it's, it's a lot of fun and there's different, like I do it on Tuesdays. Mike Reese, who I think has done your podcast. Mm-hmm. Mike comes in on Wednesdays. Dan Castellaneta does one day a week in the writer's room. Uh, Tom Gamble and Max Pross and David Merkin, former showrunner, it does Friday. So there's kind of one of us for each day. <laughs> so. Do you sort of have like a super day once a month where you all just come in for a bit of fun? No, what's funny is uh, I seldom, like Mike Reese, I hardly ever get to see him because we're never here the same day, except recently I, I did a panel with him uh, we were uh, telling stories that he was uh, selling his book, Springfield Confidential. Mm-hmm. So we put a panel together. So that gave me a chance to hang out with Mike. But normally, we don't get to see each other that often. <laughs> well, leave a post-it note for him on his desk that says we say hi. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Mike, thank you um, very, very, very much for your time. We've, we've gone slightly over what you said. So that's probably as good a time as any to wrap it up. It's been an absolute pleasure. Every time we get to talk to someone from the, the show, we just you guys are all so gracious and so giving of your time, which is a real inspiration to us as, well, whatever kind of bottom-feeding level of creators you could call podcast hosts. But, um, we, oh, oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Anyway, I, I'm not leaving on a laugh. Can I... A quick censorship story on the show? Oh, please. <laughs> this happened, uh, it must have been six, seven years ago. We were doing a, a joke in a show where we had to refer to a Viagra-type drug uh, in the show. And we weren't allowed to say Viagra uh, because it's a real product uh, in America. So we you know, we came up with our own name and we called it Bonestra, <laughs> uh, which we thought was funny. and but And we thought it wasn't too raunchy. We thought it was kind of tame, but it got the point across. And... So that's what we had in the script, and the Fox censor flagged it and said, "No, you can't say Bonastra on uh, TV. It's too dirty. Come up with something else." And so, please, we had to submit an alternative name to him. And uh, so we sent over as a joke. We sent over the name Jamadin, uh, <laughs> and then it came back approved. So that's what wound up in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Was that spelled like J A M E D E N or something? Was it? J-A-M-I-T-I-N. <laughs> oh, okay. So, no, literally just jamming it. <laughs> yeah, or maybe it was Ian. But, yeah, we weren't too subtle about it because we, we were just trying to make the censor laugh. Uh, <laughs> and we, we were surprised when it came back approved. So. 
<laughs> oh, that's phenomenal. It's uh, 6.45 in the morning, and a lot of people, as we record this, are probably waking up with an erection right now. So that is a really appropriate story to tell. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if it was the reverse in Australia, so it's good to know it's, it's, everybody wakes up the same. <laughs> yeah, well, in Australia, it just it, um, it bends counterclockwise. It's... it's <laughs> All right, guys, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, mate. Truly appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Shh.